0: Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome you all here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and the rest of our church family that's meeting uh, together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in the Crowfoot area in northwest Calgary. We're in a series on generosity, and today we're going to examine what the Apostle Paul had to say about generosity in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles and to keep it open uh, on, on 1 Timothy chapter 6. But first, would you please stand me with me and join me in a, in reading a portion of this chapter together. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life our Heavenly Father again thank you for your word the reminder Lord of the amazing generous God that we serve and Lord how you so much want to impact the world through us and through our generosity. I ask, Lord, you would teach us today what it means, Lord, to serve you with all of our heart. I ask that you would show us how our view of money, how we handle our money and our time, can have a significant impact in the lives of those around us for good or for bad. Focus our minds, soften our hearts, and Lord, give us the will, the courage to respond to whatever the Spirit would ask us to. We pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in the passage that we just read together, perhaps you notice that Paul is addressing people who are rich. So, who are these rich people that he is referring to. When I was younger I figured that Paul was talking about someone other than me. I assumed he was talking about the millionaires and the billionaires. He definitely wasn't talking about me. Well research tells us that most people in North America don't think that they are rich and therefore they would conclude that this passage doesn't apply to them. Most figure the rich are those who make about twice as much as they do. A CNN money publication asked a large group of financial planners the amount of money they thought defined a person who is rich. And they said the rich are those who have somewhere between 2 to 12 million after-tax dollars. And yet, according to Randy Alcorn, If you have sufficient food, decent clothes, live in a house that keeps the weather out, own a reasonably reliable means of transportation, including a bike or a motorcycle, you are among the top 15% of the world's wealthy. If you have any money saved at all, a hobby that requires some equipment or supply like fishing or skiing, a variety of clothes in your closet, two cars of any condition, and live in your own home, you are in the top 5% of the world's wealthy. So folks, if you came to church sad today, be happy. We are rich. Amen? Yes. The people that Paul is talking about here are, are not just the mega wealthy. He is talking about us. And keep that in mind the next time that you get frustrated with your first world problems. You know, slow internet, car trouble, delayed flights, poor weather on your vacation. Oh my, my, life is hard. You know, a disappointing meal at a restaurant. Most of the world would love to have our problems. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say that you should feel guilty about having money or that money is evil or sinful. Neither does he indicate that it's wrong to have money. No, back in verse 10 he says, it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Money can be used for good or for evil. Money can be used, on the one hand, to feed and to clothe and to provide shelter for the homeless. But it can also be used for evil purposes. It can bribe a judge. It can purchase sexual favors Or it can be used to buy or to sell cocaine. And yet, even in these situations, the evil does not reside in the money. It resides in the people and the decisions that they are making. So money in itself is not the problem. However, because of the value that we attach to it, it can be a personal force, a living power for good or evil and I believe that is why Paul addresses the issue of money here because how we view our money and what we do with our money is not only a reflection of our heart, a reflection of our spiritual condition but also plays a significant role in the kind of impact that our lives have for Jesus Christ Paul implies here that how we handle our money And what we do with our time will impact our witness for Jesus Christ, either in a good way or in a bad way. Here in chapter 6, Paul essentially says, if those of us who are Christ followers are going to impact others for Jesus Christ, then we need to give attention uh, to some things. And he points out three in particular. First of all, we must not put our hope in money. And look at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Paul says here that money can deceive us. The more money that we have, the more tempted we are to place our hope in it, to treasure it, to worship it, to believe that it can provide us with contentment and security, protection and satisfaction. And yet a survey at, um, uh, by Boston College of people with an average net worth of, get this, this is average, $78 million, okay, found that despite all of these financial resources at their disposal, many of these people still felt discontented, unhappy, anxious, and financially insecure. To feel really secure, many of them indicated they needed at least 25% more money than they had. One respondent said he wouldn't feel secure until he had 1000000000 billion after-tax dollars in the bank. Now, we shake our heads at this, and we say to ourselves, how can a person with $78 million in the bank not feel secure and content with that much money. And yet, as I said a few weeks ago, 95% of the world looks at us and asks the same question. You see, money deceives us into believing that just a little more will make us content, will give us that feeling of security, but of course it doesn't. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires rarely smile. John Jacob Astor, one of the wealthiest men in the world, said he was the most miserable man in the world. One of the wisest and richest men of the ancient world, King Solomon, wrote this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Over in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And what Paul is saying here is that true contentment does not come from our external circumstances or our income or our possessions. It doesn't come from the position that we hold at work or the size of our bank account. It doesn't come from the amount of toys that we have, the size of our home, a larger wardrobe, more entertainment, or the amount of weekend getaways that we have. No, true contentment, he says, comes from within. It comes from placing your trust and your hope in the God of the universe and embracing Christ's love for you and his purposes for your life. Paul put it this way in verse 6, here in 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, in other words, if we have the essentials, if we have our essential needs met, we will be content with that. In other words, the real things of life, the things that really matter, are not for sale. Now, money can also deceive us into defining ourselves by it. Into believing that who we are is a reflection of what we have. It's letting a six-figure income, or our toys, for example, tempt us into believing that we are more important, that we are more successful than other people. That's why some people jump off buildings, or fall apart emotionally when they lose their money, or when they lose something that's precious to them. They are defining their worth on the basis of what they have, or what they don't have. Paul warns us here not to let wealth deceive us. He warns us to not let wealth make us arrogant, thinking that we are self-sufficient and don't need anyone, that we are superior to others, that we are smarter, that we are more successful or more entitled than other people. He challenges us not to look to our money, our possessions, our positions, to deliver what only God can deliver. The love of money can deceive us. The love of money can also ensnare us. Look at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin Into ruin and destruction. Money can lead to the sin of greed. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus gave this warning. He said, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Even though though those of us in the West possess more than most people around the world, when our hope is in money, We can get trapped into thinking that it is solely for our own consumption. In fact, research has shown that the more money that people make, the less they give away, percentage-wise. People making, for example, under $40,000 a year give twice the percentage amount than those who make over $70,000 a year. You see, money can get a hold of you. The more that we have, the more that we want, and the more we want to hold on to it. We like to think that we have control of our money. But more often than not, our money has control of us. We like to think that we use money, but far too often, money uses us. Money can lead to greed. Money can also tempt us to lie. For example, Let's say that we're selling our vehicle. And we know that it's on the verge of having a major mechanical issue. In fact, our mechanic may have already been warning us about it. You know, your tranny's on its last legs. But you see, if we reveal that reality to a prospective person that wants to buy the vehicle we have, we won't get maximum dollar for it. And so what do we do? We want maximum dollar. Money's important. And so we lie about it or we cover it up. The love of money can lead us to shave the truth on our income tax return or our expense report. Many family members harbor bitterness toward each other. In fact, some don't even talk to each other anymore because of a perceived unfairness in an inheritance. Others harbor anger toward a business partner who who cheated them. Or a boss who they feel didn't give them the salary that they are worthy of. The love of money can tempt people to spend money that they desperately need. Gambling. Or or, or buying hundreds of dollars worth of lottery tickets every month. Or investing in get-rich schemes, all with the hope of making big money in a short period of time. It can entice people to work seven days a week, all in an attempt to maintain a certain lifestyle, and consequently to ignore God's call for Sabbath rest, to ignore God's call to love your spouse and to train up your children in the way of the Lord, to ignore God's call to invest in His kingdom work. I mean, these are just a few examples of how the love of money can ensnare us, tempt us into, as Paul says here, into many foolish and harmful desires that wreak havoc, not only in our physical and spiritual health, but also the health of our marriage and family. So let me ask you, what sin in your life, what frustration are you experiencing, what trouble, what hardship are you experiencing that could be traced back to a love of money? perhaps even more tragic, how has our Christian witness been tarnished because we are more concerned with making a buck or getting the best possible deal than we are about our relationship with that person? You know, like many of you, I like to get a bargain and uh, I remember one particular situation, I, I, I gave a person a, a lowball a, a low offer uh, for an item that he was selling at a, an estate-type sale. And he hesitated for quite some time, but then finally agreed that he would sell it uh, for what I had offered. And I could tell that he, that he wasn't totally pleased selling it for such a low amount. But I figured, you know, if he didn't want to, he, just, he could just tell me so. Anyways, I I was so pleased that with the great deal I got, I I could hardly wait to go home and and tell Gwen about my exceptional bargaining skills and the great bargain I got. And as I was paying him, I asked him, I said, so why are you selling all this? Are you you moving away? And he said, no. He says, actually, the truth is um, I lost my job and we've kind of fallen on hard times lately and uh, we just need to downsize. When I heard that, my heart sank immediately I knew that my desire to get the best possible deal was far more important to me than concern for how this man felt about the deal in short my sin was that I let money become more important than that person and the spirit convicted me right then and there and I I felt just awful and I proceeded to pay him the full amount that he originally asked for. He thanked me, he smiled, and he said, You're the pastor of Center Street, aren't you? <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> But it was on my mind because, you know, I can hardly go anywhere in the city without someone recognizing me. And, and it was on my mind. I just felt so bad about my attitude, my insensitivity. I kind of hoped that he didn't recognize me. I ended up having a wonderful conversation with him. Was even able to recommend someone that he might look up, talk to about a possible job. But I left with a new conviction that day. Not to let money supersede relationships or let my witness be tarnished just out of my desire to get the best deal possible. In verse 11, Paul says, if we are going to impact others for Christ, we must flee from all this. We must not put our hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Rather, he says in verse 17, and this is the second point, we must put our hope In God. At the end of the day, we all have one major decision to make in life. Will we put our hope in money and the things of this world or will we put our hope in God? Will we put our hope in the temporary things of life or will we put our hope in the eternal things of God? I love the story of the mugger who stuck a gun in a man's ribs and he said, your money or your life, buddy? After a long pause, the mugger got kind of impatient. He said, well, and the man said, don't rush me. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. (laughs) You know, we chuckle at that, but the reality is many people are at that place. They haven't really made a decision. They just can't get around to making a decision about who they're going to trust and who they're going to serve with their life. Many say their hope is in God but they often live like their hope is in money, which is the reason I believe that Jesus spent so much time talking about money and why the Bible devotes more than four times the number of verses to the subject of money than it does to the subject of prayer or faith. This is the mother of all decisions that every person must settle on at some point in their life. Will I put my hope and trust in the Creator or in the created. Matthew six twenty four, Jesus just says it plainly. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus does not say here, you must not serve two masters. No, he says, you cannot serve two masters because a master requires all of you. No differently than a loving spouse will not stand for a mate who promises to be faithful 60% of the time or who even promises to be faithful 95% of the time. Paul says, your impact for Christ will be greatly compromised if you attempt to serve both God and money. If you try to live on both sides of the fence because your life will be characterized by anxiety, by frustration. Many times it'll be characterized by a lack of integrity and feverish activity. There's only one pathway to a life that is characterized by joy and peace and integrity of life. And that is a life that puts their hope in God and God alone. Now again, even though trusting God begins with a decision that we make, at some point we have to drive a stake in the ground and make a decision about this. The reality is, after having made that decision, it's a daily process of growth. I've said this before, but the Christian life is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about the direction of a heart that is in love with Jesus and longs to live all out for Jesus. Now, in Luke chapter 19, we're introduced to a man who experienced this kind of heart change as a result of meeting Jesus. His name was Zacchaeus, a high-ranking tax collector for the Roman government, which means he was very wealthy. Zacchaeus was despised by his people because in choosing to be a tax collector for the Romans... He not only betrayed his own family, but he actually betrayed his own people. He would have been seen like those German people during the Second World War who paved the way for their own people to be oppressed by collaborating with the Nazis. So we we look at that and we ask ourselves, what would possess a man to betray his family and his people like this? Well, the answer is money. He did it for money. Judas betrayed Jesus for money. Money was Zacchaeus's God. And being a tax collector assured him not only of great wealth, but of the good life. Now, in Luke 19, we read, when Jesus was passing through Jericho, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, which tells us that he was eager to see Jesus. In fact, he was so eager that he climbed a tree to see Jesus. Now, in that culture, climbing a tree was considered an undignified thing to do for any grown man to do, much less a high-ranking official. And yet, Zacchaeus did precisely that, telling us that he was not just eager to meet Jesus, but he was desperate to meet him. It tells us that even though he had great wealth and was living the good life, inside his life was empty and hollow. His counterfeit money God was a huge disappointment and wasn't delivering What it promised. Well, the passage tells us that Jesus spotted Zacchaeus in the tree. He stopped, and to everyone's chagrin, he greeted him and invited himself to have dinner at Zacchaeus' house later that day. Now, many details of what happened next are left out of the story. But we do know that later that day, Zacchaeus had a change of heart and became a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says this, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He expressed two promises. One, generosity to the less fortunate. And the second one was, To enact justice to those that he had cheated. Now, note what Jesus said next. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now make no mistake, Jesus was not saying that Zacchaeus became a child of God's because he gave away half of his fortune to the poor. Jesus was saying that the radical change in Zacchaeus's heart and life from being greedy and focused on money to being generous and being focused on Jesus and the needs of other people, that proved that his heart had been radically transformed. You know, we can talk and sing all that we want about surrendering all to Jesus. But the real litmus test of our devotion to God is found in what we're doing with the time, the abilities, the money that God has entrusted to us. Our values, our priorities, our financial decisions are a reflection of our heart. And who or what we're really trusting in. And here in our scripture lesson in 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul, he goes on to say essentially the same thing. He says, if you want to impact others for Jesus, then you need to not only put your hope in God, but you need to live all out for God. Look at verse 18. He says, command them, referring again to the rich, to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. You see, one of the key indicators that Christ has invaded your life is that you see money and the temporary things of life for what they really are. Things that don't last. Things that can't and never will satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. And consequently, the power of money and possessions and position and fame and pleasure, the power of all of that is broken in your life. They no longer define you. They, that You no longer worship them, but you hold them with an open hand. And Paul says one of the key indicators that the power of money no longer controls you or defines you is a life of generosity. In the same way that God defeated sin and Satan by giving his son Jesus to die for our sins on the cross, so God defeats the power of money in our lives through generosity. We see this in the life of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' sacrificial generosity came from a heart that had experienced the amazing grace of Christ. Tim Keller asks the question, why is generosity the mark of being a Christian? That's a really good question. This is how he explains it. He says, imagine a person who is deathly ill. The doctor announces to him that there's a medicine which can cure him. Without it, he has no hope. However, says the doctor, it's extremely expensive. You're going to have to sell your your cars, even your home, to buy it. You may not wish to spend so much. The man turns to his doctor and says, what do my cars mean to me now? What good will my house be? I must have that medicine. It's precious to me these other things which are so important to me now look pale by comparison to the medicine. They're expendable now. Give me the medicine. The Apostle Peter says, To you who believe, he the Lord is precious. To you who understand the amazing grace of God, To you, he and his grace is precious, more precious than anything we have here. You see, folks, this is the reason Zacchaeus gave so generously. Before he met Christ, his life was hollow. His heart was empty. It was doomed. And this heart... Because of his interaction and his faith in Jesus Christ was transformed by the wonderful grace of Jesus and filled with the life-changing love, joy, and peace of Jesus. And as a result, gratitude and the joy of the Lord just oozed out of him in rich generosity. I mean, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to give away half of his fortune to the poor. No, Zacchaeus wanted to do that himself because of the love that he had in his heart for Jesus. And he did so with great delight. You know, this last July, Gwen and I celebrated our 38th wedding anniversary. And so let's say that on our wedding anniversary, I came home and I I say to my wife Gwen, hey babe, my little desert flower, happy anniversary and I proceed to hand her a dozen roses she tears up and she says oh dear you shouldn't have and I say well you know it's our anniversary you know it's kind of my duty I mean can you just feel the love in that (laughs) or let's say I come home and I give her the flowers and she says oh dear that's so thoughtful you didn't have to and I respond I didn't Come to think of it, you know, it was kind of expensive. Maybe if I hurry, I can take them back and get a refund. What do you think? I mean, (laughs) can't you just hear the love and the romance meter coming to us screeching? (laughs) Now, you see, we understand this. This isn't rocket science. She wants my heart. She doesn't really care what I give her. Well okay maybe a bit but <laughs> but she doesn't care what I give her so much what matters to her most is that whatever I give her is a reflection of the love that I have for her in my heart Zacchaeus's generosity came from the heart He didn't ask Jesus, you know, the question that the rich young ruler asked him. Remember what he asked Jesus? I mean, I'm going to put it in my version, but this is essentially what the rich young ruler was asking Jesus. He was saying, you know, what's it going to cost me to be a Christian? You know, how much am I going to have to ante up here to please you? You know, what's the least amount I can give and still make it to heaven? That's essentially what he was asking. Today, people, you know, if, if the rich young ruler had been here today, he would have said, well, so I need to know, do I need to give from, um, from my, the gross salary amount or do I need to give from the net? I'd like to give from the net if it's okay with you. You know, if I just serve, is that okay or do I have to give money? I mean, I'd rather just serve. You see, those are the kind of questions that the rich dude would have asked if he was here today. But you see, that wasn't Zacchaeus' spirit at all. He wasn't looking for a way to to give as little as possible. He gave more than what was required because his heart was bursting with gratitude to Jesus and for the grace of God in his life. His generosity was a sacrifice of praise to the grace of God. You know, David had the same attitude when he said, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. For example, Zacchaeus promised to give away half of his income to the poor, which is far beyond the 10% giving that's required by the law of Moses. But you see, Since he knew that his salvation did not come through the law, but through grace. He did not aim to live by only fulfilling the letter of the law. He wanted to go beyond it. You know, over the years, people have asked me whether in this era of grace that believers are required to to give the tithe or 10%. And I have asked them, even though Jesus had no use for a legalistic mindset, I've asked them, as you, as you read and study the spirit of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere, do you get the sense that he was calling for less of our devotion? Or was he calling for total devotion on our part? Did Jesus tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? And given that he did give it all, wouldn't you agree that in this age of grace Jesus doesn't want just 10% of us? He wants all of us? Regardless of whether or not the tithe is prescribed in the New Testament, wouldn't you agree that the spirit of the New Testament is that 10% is a starting point. It's the floor of giving. It's not the ceiling of giving. That's the spirit of the New Testament. That's the spirit of Christ. You know, Randy Alcorn makes an interesting observation. In fact, someone gave me a card this last week that essentially made the same observation. Alcorn says, in an age of grace, you would think Christians would give more than the people who gave or as we believe, had to give in the Old Testament era of the law. And yet, he points out that the average giving of church members is around 2.5% of their income, which means that people in the Old Testament era gave nearly five times more in obedience to the law of Moses than Christians are giving today in response to the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. All that to say that when you understand the grace of Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and when you put your trust wholly in Jesus and make him Lord and King of your life, not only will you experience his amazing joy and peace and the freedom that he came to bring, but your life will be increasingly characterized by sacrificial generosity. In verse 18, Paul says... You will do good, which means you will increasingly live a life of integrity. You will do what's right, even if it costs you money. You will do what's right, even if it costs you time. You will do what's right, even if it inconveniences you. Doing good also means that you will do your part to bring justice to our world. Doing what you can to set people free from the grip of poverty homelessness, and or human trafficking. Paul says, you will do good. But in addition, he says, your life will be rich in good deeds. In addition to generous giving, your life will be characterized by generous living. You'll wake up every morning and you'll turn to the Lord and you'll ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to do with all that you've entrusted to me? And then as you go through your day, your spiritual ears will be attuned to him and to his whispers. And you're going to look for opportunities to display his grace and his goodness in and through your life to the people around you. And you'll begin to do things like shoveling your neighbor's walk or inviting someone over for lunch or helping someone start their car or providing a meal for a family in crisis or, or with a newborn child or, or making up shoe boxes, or a care package or a food hamper uh, for the less fortunate, visiting a senior shut-in and blessing them with some baking, cooking a Christmas or Thanksgiving meal for people who have no family around, The list is as creative and as extensive as God is creative. And that means it's endless if we're dialed into him. He will direct our paths. Paul calls us to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In addition to being sacrificially generous with our money, He calls us to be sacrificially generous with our time and our abilities. You know, many people say, they say no to volunteering in the church or the Lord's work. They just say their schedules are just tapped out. They're just completely full. They have no time. And yet research shows that the average person in North America spends over six hours a day outside of work watching television or surfing the net. Maybe God is calling us to just to begin to sacrifice some of that for a greater cause. Parents often talk about how much they want to invest in the lives of their children, but they just have no time to invest even 15 minutes a day having family devotions and spiritual discussions with their children. They just have no time to give even just a couple of hours a month to invest in the spiritual formation of their children in their church's children's ministry. And yet, research shows that the average parent somehow finds the time to go shopping six hours a week while spending only 40 minutes interacting and playing with their children a week. You see, the sacrificial generosity that Paul is calling us to may mean that we begin to devote less of our time to lesser things like watching television. And we intentionally devote more of our time investing in people and the things that matter to God and that the things that are really going to matter to us as well when it's all said and done. Make no mistake, God doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our abilities. He doesn't need our money. What he wants is you and me. He wants all of us. He wants to have a meaningful, growing friendship with us. He wants to bless us so that we can be a blessing to other people. And he wants us to step out and let him take us on a faith-building adventure through generosity. Speaking of faith-building adventures... I want to introduce you to another family from our church, the Jardines, whose faith has come alive, has grown leaps and bounds as a result of them listening to God and then stepping out in obedience by faith. Just watch this.
1: After working in a dealership as a mechanic for several years, God put it on my heart to open my own shop, one that could serve the community and bless people in need. It would be a place where I could provide for my family and be part of God's work. I soon found a place near Centre Street Church. It was a dump, but I walked in and I felt God was in this place. I didn't have the finances ready, but I trusted him and I left my job of 22 years, stepping out in faith. God provided to get the shop up and running. I was worried that we wouldn't have enough customers to make ends meet, but I continued to trust God. Since opening up, I've never advertised and I've never had a slow day. We've been open for two and a half years and we have a customer base of over 1,200 people. Throughout this time, we have seen God be generous with our business so we could be generous to others. People come in and they've got stories. Everybody has a story. And so when we look at each individual, whether it's someone who was referred or not, we we can get a sense where people are at, the the state of their vehicle. Um, They're quite open when it comes to expenses, what they can afford and they can't. And when I give them a price, they're either okay with it or sometimes they're having a difficult time. When I see a hesitation, I ask a few questions and I start asking, is that too much? Can you afford that? And then we start looking at ways that we can help them out. Whether it's a discount on the parts, if it's spreading out the payments on the repair, because most people are able to pay. They just might not be able to pay right away. So God just puts it on my heart. I can't explain it. I had a gentleman yesterday that came in. We did his breaks for him. He couldn't afford the repair. I handed him his keys, and he left, smiling. He felt blessed, but I felt more blessed because I felt I was doing God's will. We've been able to impact people for single moms through Centre Street. Um, We've had a number of single moms come here. We've been able to. Just the fact that we can provide a service for them that they can trust someone, that they're not being ripped off. We also work with immigrant families that are new to Canada again not knowing where to take their vehicles and the trust starts as soon as they walk in the door. Well I've had the privilege to phone a customer and say one of the single moms and say just to let you know we had a gentleman walk in here one of our customers and he's take care of your bill and there's a silence at the other end of the phone and it gets emotional. I've been blessed to work with my kids Bretton and Miranda. Bretton's started his apprenticeship so he's taking on the trade himself. He's becoming a technician. When we do things for people, God provides. He, it seems like the bank account never changes. So if we give things away, God provides. And as that happens, and I do it more and more, I see him working in ways I could never, ever have dreamed. And to take care of the finances for this shop, for wages and all that, we never run short. I trust him um, with everything to do with this business because I have no control when that phone rings. I don't have control over the people that walk into the shop. God has put such a peace on my heart that I never have before. And I'm not stressed. I come into work each morning and I enjoy my job. he's impacted me in my life that it's it's not in my hands it's in God's hands and it isn't about fixing the cars it's developing that relationship and that trust and it just continues to grow god's asked us to be generous not only through the business or at work but also in our personal life at our at home life and that's through foster and now through adoption through a little girl who's changed our lives Being a father to teenagers and now a father to a -a two-and-a-half-year-old to hear daddy again is just wow. From a little girl that has no one to has mom and dad. Powerful, powerful. I go home when I walk in the door, I hear daddy's home. (laughs) My heart breaks. (laughs) I encourage everyone to step out and be generous with what God has given you. You will see his will done day in and day out.
0: So that encourage you. <laughs> you know the our ultimate role model is Jesus Christ. And when he came to earth, his focus in life was to do only one thing. And that was to do what his father told him to do. Imagine the impact we would have in our world if every follower of Jesus Christ were to live that way. If we were to open our hands to the Lord every morning and say, okay, Lord, all that I am and all that I have, it's available for your use. What do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? Imagine the impact that we would have if every follower of Jesus Christ put the Lord and his mission first in their financial decisions and in their calendar, my prayer for each one of us here at Center Strait is that our passions and our priorities would be redirected toward that which will outlast us, toward the eternal things of God for his glory. And for the sake of a world that needs to know the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for your generosity toward us. By world standards, we truly are rich and a blessed people forgive us Lord for the many times that we've complained about what we don't have or the times we've complained about our first world problems and we fail to be grateful for all you've provided Lord please remind us through your spirit when our hope begins to drift toward money begins to drift toward temporary forms of security in this world help us to see the deceit, the deception, and all of that. And Lord, give us a conviction and the courage to hold everything loosely and to put our trust in you. Help us, Lord, to see this life from your perspective, to step out in faith and to experience the priceless adventures that you have in store for us when we follow your lead and invest in the eternal things rather than the temporary lesser things. Show each and every every person here today how we can impact our world for Jesus by doing good by investing in good deeds and by being sacrificially generous all for your glory and for the sake of a world without Jesus for we pray it in the precious name of Jesus and now may the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.